Welcome to another installment of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. All right, put your thinking caps on. We have got, uh, you know, as far as difficulty of subject, you know, with one being the easiest, 10 being the hardest, this is a good 10.5 difficulty level, but a necessary episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you've ever been in the NAR or been exposed to people in the New Apostolic Reformation, you might have run into a theology that you didn't even know existed in the New Apostolic Reformation, and that theology is called open theism. Now, I am no expert in open theism. I've only dabbled in doing any kind of apologetic work against open theism, and so I have invited on Fighting for the Faith three guests, and all of them are doctors and I am not, and so we're going to rely heavily upon their expertise and their experiences to, first of all, identify what is open theism, um, you know, where does it come from? Who are some of its major proponents uh, outside of the NAR? Uh, and biblically, how do we combat it? What are the dangers of it? And then we'll talk and we'll segue into a discussion about how it's actually found its way into the New Apostolic Reformation. And so with that, let me bring on our guests, and we've got three of them. All right. Good to see you guys. And uh, uh, Evan and Vivian, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Peaches? Peach like the fruit. Peach like the food. Okay. Uh, Dr. Uh, Evan and Dr. Vivian Peaches, and then Dr. Bruce Ware. If you guys can quickly introduce yourself, we'll start with Evan and Vivian. Uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. And, uh, and then Dr. Ware, I think you're a lot more uh, well-known than they are, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as well, and then we'll get into our discussion. Well, thank you, Chris. It's, uh, thank you for having us on. It's certainly a pleasure for many years, your channel has certainly been instrumental for us. Uh, so a, a quick, I guess, cap on us. We've, I've spent about 20 years inside the New Apostolic Reformation movement. Uh, came out around 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Bruce Ware has pretty much a substantial part of that, uh, helping us come out of that movement. So I'm really honored to have him here. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, when we came out of the movement itself, we wanted to really do a deep dive into how did we actually get into that theology. And with that, I spent about a couple, three, four or five years now, uh, various degrees, various research, really looking into uh, C. Peter Wagner and the roots of the NAR, looking at the, the theological system behind that. Okay. Uh, how about you, Vivian? <laughs> Well, thank you. It is an absolute honor to be here with, with uh, Dr. Ware and with you, Chris. Uh, it, it's surreal. Uh, I think having seen your show, uh, both having provided it to our parents, to our family, and having people who were in the New Apostolic Reformation watch your show has just been instrumental in us growing our faith. Hmm. So... Like Evan said, uh, we kept asking the question, why, who, where, when, you know, all all of the sixth grade report questions. And we used the phrase that we just kept pulling a thread and seeing it where where it would land uh, and just kept pulling a thread. And it led to open theism at the, the 
actually the first semester, we were in Dr. Ware's systematic theology class and we had to research. And that that's something that just we both attached to. Mm-hmm. What is it? Why is it here? And how do we address it? All right. And Dr. Ware, you're, you're one of the world's foremost experts on open theism. Um, uh, were you immediately shocked and, and convinced that the New Apostolic Reformation had open theism in it? Or did you, was there a little bit of pushback from you uh, when, the, uh, when the peaches came to you with their, with their hypothesis? Well, I, I was unaware until I heard from Evan and, and Vivian about the, the connection to open theism in, in the NAR. I was unaware of that before, and I had done a lot of reading and research and writing on open theism, but I did not know that Peter Wagner, who my wife was a secretary for him at Fuller Seminary uh, back Whoa. in the day. Uh, you know, so, I mean, we knew the, the Wagners. We, we knew, knew the faculty there at, uh, at the School of World Missions at Fuller. Um, because I was a doctoral student there during those days, and I had no idea that that Pete Wagner had gone the openness direction. But it is so evident that they that he did, and uh, Evan and Vivian's research have borne that out very clearly. Uh, so that was new to me. I I know the open theism of Clark Pinnock and John Sanders yeah. and Greg Boyd and f- figures like that. Uh, so it it was a, a revelation to me to see the connection. Yes. Interesting. Now, just for the sake of the audience, uh, where where are you teaching at, sir? Yes, I, I've taught for 25 years now at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where uh, both Evan and Vivian are students, gra- graduates and continuing students there. Uh, such a privilege to be at this institution that the Lord has blessed in so many, many ways over the past 30 years that Al Mohler has been the president there. Indeed. I got to meet Dr. Mola for the first time last June and had a wonderful conversation with him. And Ooh. funny enough, at the time I was talking with him, uh, we were talking about Rick Warren and what was going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh. And all the way back in June of last year, he told me exactly what would happen in uh, in Louisiana uh, this year. And he, he turned out to be right. <laughs> well, I thought that was very interesting. All right, yeah. so we, we've got we've got a little bit of the backstory. We know who you guys are, but what when we talk about open theism? I don't know a lot of people who've read Clark Pinnock. He's not, he's not as uh, popular as he was when I was growing up in the eighties. Um, um, many people who know about the emergent church movement might know a little bit about Greg Boyd, uh, and and that's where they know about open theism. But when we're talking about this theological um, system or this uh, this you know frame in, in which they do theology, let's talk about what is it and what are like some of the the, the key hallmarks of this theology. Let's start with definitions, and I'll leave it open to whoever who wants to jump in at this point. Well, why, why don't I take this part? Because this, that's something I'm familiar with, the connection okay. to NAR. I'm going to yield completely to Evan and, and Vivian on that, on that part of it. So open theism really began in the 1980s. Uh, Richard Rice, who was a, a Seventh-day Adventist, was mm-hmm. writing on this, but it wasn't until 1995 when a book came out in, entitled The Openness of God, uh, written by five authors, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, William Hasker, uh, Richard Rice, and uh, David Basinger. Those five authors presented a, a view 
in which God uh, created the world, but he, he did not know, could not know, as a matter of fact, the future free uh, decisions and actions of human beings. So they held the view that if God has exhaustive foreknowledge, which of course has been held in every part of Christendom, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, every form of Protestantism has held to, to exhaustive divine foreknowledge that before God created the world, he knew everything that was going to take place. So they rejected that notion because they they came to the conviction that if God knows the future f- choices and actions of human beings, then they're not free in doing what they do, in, in choosing what they choose. If, if they... Uh, if, if God has determined, or I'm sorry, if God, if God knows exhaustively that, that uh, tonight for dinner you're going to have a hamburger, Chris, well, his mm-hmm. knowledge is, is flawless, is perfect, and he's known this from eternity. So are you free to have pizza? And the answer is no. You, you, you cannot choose something contrary to what God knows you will choose. So, this sounds like the oracle from uh, the Matrix talking. Uh, you know? yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, you know, it's a it, it was a very serious um, conclusion that they came to, which led them then to deny that God knows the future. The future, rather, is open, hence the term open theism, rather than closed. Mm-hmm. And our decisions make a difference then in the shape of the world. And God, God does not know how things are going to turn out, even though he might have a better guess than the rest of us do in in terms of that. Uh, And so this is what led to this movement. So let me ask a follow-up question. That being the case, when God prophesied the future, when Christ prophesied the future, was that just his best guess? Yes. They, They appeal to one of two things. Either God's best guess, although they use different terminology for that, but that's the idea, or that those prophecies have implicit conditions that if they're not fulfilled, then God is not obligated to fulfill what he has said will take place. And uh, so they, they take, for example, the, the statement to Jonah, through Jonah to the Ninevites, mm-hmm. you know, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's a prophecy but yep. it wasn't fulfilled because of a condition that was implicit in what what uh, God told Jonah to say. The implicit condition was, unless you repent, which, of course, they right. did repent. And then God did not bring the judgment upon them. So they take that notion and say a lot of prophecy can be explained as uh, conditional, even if even if the condition is not presented explicitly in the text. Or God's best guess. One of those two tend tend to cover what they uh, they see prophecy to be. Of course, the problem with that is that the well, I was going to say the vast majority, at least a large portion of biblical prophecy, is prophecy in which God declares unilaterally that something will take place, and the fulfillment of it uh, involves future free choices and actions of human beings. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and yet it takes place. I mean, you think of, of uh, uh, in Isaiah uh, 44 and 45, where God prophesies Cyrus will be the one who will, you yeah. know, be the instrument that he uses to bring bring uh, is, the Israelites back to the land and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and so on, which is exactly what happens. Well, that's not a, you know, a, a, 
an implicit condition in there. It's not God's best guess. He's actually naming the person 150 yeah. years before he's born. And, uh, and so they, they just really cannot account for prophecy of that kind that, that the, is uh, found all through the Bible. Right. And then I would note that uh, when you, you look at eschatological prophecies, like in the book of Daniel, prophesying, uh, you know, the 70 weeks and then, you know, ultimately the, the, the rise of the man of lawlessness and then the conclusion of the of the age of kingdoms of the earth with the, with the arrival of Christ, uh, that, that, that seems like a pretty clear eschatological promise that we can, uh, a prophecy that we can bank on, uh, especially since the churches confess that Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is, that is an absolute future statement that, uh, that is going to happen because Christ has said so. He knows the future. So yes, we got right. we got some interesting problems here. I I do find it fascinating that the approach that they use going to uh, the book of Jonah is uh, is that I can immediately see that the NAR would have a. Um, uh, there, there would be a temptation for them to go with open theism because of what it does with prophecy. We can talk about this with the peaches. But my, my next question is, how does the open theist view the scripture then? Um, is there a difference between they, their view of, of the authority of scripture and its inerrancy and inspiration as opposed to the, you know, the historic position held by uh, confessional Lutherans and confessional Calvinists? Right. Well, this was uh, a big problem at uh, the Evangelical Theological Society, where Clark Pinnock and John Sanders were brought up on charges of denying inerrancy. And of course, inerrancy mm -hmm. is, uh, is part of the doctrinal affirmation of ETS. And they escaped being voted out uh, by a very narrow margin, but it was very clear that their writings did indicate that indeed they denied inerrancy. Because yeah. they would look at prophecies and they would say things like, and of course that didn't take place. Well, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's just it, you can't have you can't have an inerrant Bible where God is declaring something that will take place with certainty, and they claim it doesn't take place. Well, then God doesn't know what He's saying, you know. So. Uh, he yeah, and yeah. and my my question, the immediate question, would be how do they view uh, how scripture in, you know in, interpret scripture? Uh, because you know I can think of at least one other place, and it's in the prophet Jeremiah, where God specifically says that if He calls somebody to repentance and He's declared disaster for them and they repent, that He will yes. relent of that disaster. God has made that very yeah. clear, and that's the operative right. principle in uh, in the book of Jonah. And that, in fact, Jonah knew that God was going to forgive them if they repented, which is the whole reason why he headed off in the opposite exactly. direction and needed a big exactly. fish to motivate him. So, right. you, you know, yeah. Jonah was I, not I like keen to, on the mercy of God. <laughs> no, he was not. I like to point out that if, if, uh, uh, if it is the fact that God learned when they repented that that's what they did, and then God changed his mind literally and chose not, not to bring the judgment upon them, then Jonah had more insight into what was going on than God did. Yes, right? that's correct. And this yeah. is exactly why he didn't want to go in the first place. Oh no! I mean, you think he would? <laughs> he would love the fact that God is sending him to pr pronounce judgment against the Ninevites. Well, I mean, this is a great day, you know, for Jonah. But yeah. No, he didn't want to go because he knew that's not what this was about from yeah. the very beginning. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, that and that's why in in you know at the, in the last chapter he screams out, "I knew this was going to happen," <laughs> and, and, he, and he and he has a prophetic temper tantrum. So, but you know, and I would note I would note that uh, what what it seems to me that the open theists are doing is they're 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 trying to smuggle in a kind of a. Uh, a sneaky philosophical argument, kind of like a logical conundrum and trying to put it onto the scriptures. And then they're eisegeting to try to find passages yeah, that kind of right. go with that hypothesis. Yeah. So. And, you know, one, one of the most powerful uh, set of pa- chapters in the Bible that, that uh, argue against the openness view is Isaiah 41 to 49, okay, in which yeah. re- repeatedly the argument is, uh, God saying to these pretender deities, these idols, if you are truly gods, t- tell us what's going to take place in the future so that yep. when it happens, we, we can see that you were right about that. But you cannot declare the future, therefore you are not God. I declare the future, and that establishes one of the, one of the bases for his claim of deity. So yep. over and over again, God establishes his own uh, exclusive deity on the basis, in part, that he declares what's going to take place, and when it does take place, you know only God could do that. Right. And isn't that the whole point of the Christological title of uh, Alpha and Omega? Isn't that really the sure. whole point of that particular concept? He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, yes. You know, and and so, and then uh, it, it wasn't Christ, uh, cru- you know, uh, crucified from the foundations of the earth. I, I, you know, yeah. may, you know if, if he was crucified from the foundations of the earth, then then Adam and Eve's rebellion didn't catch him off guard. And and we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's just there are so many things you realize when you look at at the Bible's teaching. That the openness view just cannot account for. Yeah, and, that this, and then, this is why it really has failed, you know, to to um, get ahead of steam, except for in movements that are not as careful with the Bible as perhaps you know you see in the NAR and the like. Right. I, I like I said, I can see the temptation, you know, um, and and then if people were looking for other passages that kind of d- nail this down, I would two more come to mind. I think of the uh, opening chapter of the prophet Jeremiah, where God says, "Before you were born, I knew you," uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and that He had appointed him to be a prophet yes. to the nations. And then yes. Ephesians two ten says that we are Christ, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, four good works which He has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Uh, yes. So, you know, if we're, if God has prepared good our good works and consecrated Jeremiah before he was ever born and knew him uh, prior to his uh, to his conception, I, I'm pretty sure God knows what's happening tomorrow yes. and what I'm going to have what I'm going to have for breakfast. I don't even know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, but God does, you know. Yes, but I, I don't have to worry about some philosophical game that well, since God knows what I'm having for breakfast, do I really have a free choice? That's 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 a, a philosophical uh, shell and pea game. Game, you know that that they're right. they're engaging in. Hey, let me give you one more passage, Chris, and then I, I know I want to turn it over to uh, uh, Evan and, and Vivian. Uh, but in John thirteen, <coughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. In John thirteen at verse nineteen, this is this is just like the God of Isaiah spoke, but now this is Jesus. He said, mm-hmm. "From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass." 
so that when it does occur, you may believe that ego a me. I am. am. Yeah. The I am of Exodus 3.14. And then later in the chapter, he prophesies, Jesus prophesies Peter's three denials. Yeah. So here, you know, in that context, I'm telling you things before they take place so you'll know that I am God. And then Jesus declares Peter's going to deny him three times. And the three times is a real problem for open theism because the best they could say is, well, God knew that Peter would have a disposition that he might likely deny him, you know, given the right circumstances. But three times? Why why not just once? And then, you know, go, go and hang himself like Judas did or something like that, you know. But they just cannot account for the specificity of the prophecy and fulfilled yeah. exactly as Jesus said it. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. that's and and that's exactly right. God does know the end from the beginning and he absolutely has yeah, prophesied yeah. the future. I, I think all the way back to the garden of Eden that the uh, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's a clear right. prophecy regarding the virgin birth of Christ. Yeah. You know, yes. and and Amen. God knew all of that all the way back then, you know. And then of course Isaiah 7 he prophesied that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and call yeah. his name Emmanuel. Yeah, right. I I, right. I I'm pretty sure, and then that Jesus, not a single one of Jesus's bones would be broken while he's being crucified, and that he would be crucified, betrayed mm-hmm. for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, all those details are in the Old Testament. So, yes, right. Yeah. yeah. And they involve future free choices and actions of human beings. I mean, it's yes. soldiers who chose to break the legs of the other two on opposite sides of Christ, but not break the legs of Christ. Yeah. Those were people who made that decision, right? So... Yeah. God prophesied what free creatures would do, and that is not a contradiction, as the openness people would claim. Now, uh, what role then does free will play in their in their theology? Because you know this this free will is a hot button uh, topic, and as a confessional Lutheran, um, I believe that when it comes to the things of God, that our our wills are bound unless we are saved by Christ, unless we're regenerated. But when it comes to uh, my relationships with human beings, I can make a conscious decision to uh, to feed somebody a great meal or to poison them. That's that's always a choice. Uh, that I have, but when it comes to the things of God, that uh, because I'm born dead in trespasses and sins, I have a bound will towards God until God frees uh, frees me and regenerates me. What is their view then of free will in in their system? Well, they hold to what is called libertarian freedom, and this is really the view of freedom that's held in process theology, in classic mm-hmm. Arminianism, as yeah. well as openism. It's it's a very widely held. View it's kind of the the common sense notion that most people have, to be honest with you, and that is we're free at the moment of choice. Um, if if at the moment we choose one thing, we we had the power to choose otherwise. So we we if we choose A, we could have chosen B. This this notion of libertarian freedom then indicates that if God knows that we're going to choose A then we have to choose A because God's knowledge cannot be wrong. And so they, in order to, to salvage and maintain libertarian freedom, they argue God can't know that then. He cannot know that you're going to choose A instead of B or B instead of A until you make that choice. But their commitment to libertarian freedom is really a, a significant part of mm-hmm. why they have developed this view. 
Right. And and I would note then that their view doesn't take into consideration that there can be other explanations, uh, you know, that that they are just not aware of. I mean, God lives and exists in eternity. We live in time and space. And right. so that being the case, uh, you know, I think it's hard for human beings who are bound by time and space to understand how the knowledge of God transcends all of that. And he can see the end from the beginning and see all the decisions that we make and know right. exactly how things are going to uh, go down. And that this would not then violate some philosophical rule that a human being created. So, Right. Yeah. Very good point. Okay. So, uh, so uh, Evan and Vivian, you guys spent some time in the NAR, and uh, and Evan, you specifically noted it was a, a significant amount of time, and uh, and like anybody who's come out of a bad theological system, I had to do the same thing. By the way, when I came out of the latter rain, uh, and that is, you you tried to figure out how did you guys get deceived? What? What was that that you guys were believing, and where did it come from? And you said that very early on, you came to the conclusion that uh, you were exposed to, while you were in the NAR, you were exposed to, uh, to open theism. And I can see the seduction of open theism because of, of how it necessarily makes it possible for God to give prophecies and for them to not come to pass. That, that cool. seems to be a, uh, <laughs> a very convenient uh, theological system for them because I've noticed that NAR prophets aren't even as accurate as an as a old analog clock. An old analog clock is is correct twice a day. Uh, these guys aren't even that accurate. So uh, you know that that being the case, tell us a little bit about how you exactly came to find the uh, that open theism was in uh, in your uh, in your NAR theology, and then we'll you know, we'll, we'll tell a little bit more of the story as as we go. But t- start us off with at least that. Absolutely, and. and uh... It's, it's a story that's certainly worthwhile getting some coffee over. It's actually quite funny. And uh, Dr. Ware has a lot to do with it and some pithy statements that uh, just <laughs> continue to laugh about to this day. Um, and, I, and I quote, that is one way to choose a church that he uh, <laughs> told us early on. Yeah. But uh, Vivian grew up in the um, Foursquare Four Square yeah. movement. Okay. And I grew up out of the uh, Trinity Fellowship, Jimmy Evans, Robert Morris, uh, kind of gave yeah. me church, if you will. So we, starting in around 2016 or so, yeah, we we were volunteer leaders in a pre-marriage ministry at uh, one of these churches. And uh, we wanted to find an opportunity for us to, to start writing books, because that's what you do in the uh, charismatic movement, such as the NAR, because that's, that's how you get notoriety. So mm-hmm. yep. we, we, we were going down that path. Tour the circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. And we, we were just asking around, like, where, where do we go to seminary? In fact, we even asked Robert Morris, where, where do we go to seminary? And um, part of that movement, our eyes were opened up when we talked to one of our pastors, Stephen LeBlanc, who was a former pastor as well at a Trinity Fellowship Church in, in Gateway and he, he also came out of that movement. And when we reached out to him to where, can you give us some information about where you, where you went to school so we can follow your footsteps? He said, I'm going to stop you right there. I, I don't hold to this theology. And that was the moment that you realized there's something 
theologically different than what we believed in than other options out there. That's the only movement that we really were ever exposed to mm-hmm. was the ethos of the prosperity gospel and AR movements. And the fast forward just a little bit, uh, we ended up going to Southern and uh, got in touch with uh, Dr. Ware. And I, I, I don't think it was about the first or second even evening that the doctrine of God is a primary focus of systematic theology the, the first semester for most seminary students. And I realized that I was actually an open theist without knowing it, because in the NAR, one of the things that is a distinctive, they will minimize talking any type of theological term. And so we adopted this system really without understanding it. And when we were able to actually start putting names to it and realize, wait a minute, this is actually the view that we hold yeah. that uh, there, there's alternate paths to the future and that that future is dependent on my prayers, is dependent on what I believed. It was dependent on so many things, like even my own salvation. I, I, I grew up probably every church camp, uh, all through middle school and high school, rededicating my life, if you will, in that movement, because I always had this notion that I am not saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't until I, my eyes were truly open, and I actually saw that I was in dead trespasses in my sin, that Christ actually uh, the gospel made sense. And yeah, um, in anything. Yeah, I think when we were those volunteer leaders, there were two standout moments. One of which was an activation session, and. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. So it, I, it, I, I it activate a credit card when it comes in. I, I have, you know, I'm, uh, 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 I don't think activations existed until credit cards existed, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. But it's one of those where uh, recognizing that God has given us a name and that name combats the names that Satan has given us. And it is our responsibility to throw away the names Satan has given us and to adopt the name God has given us so that we can then truly live in um, our, I think that's the spiritual warfare and that's where it all comes. comes So that was a huge moment. Another one was when we were asking what the gospel was, we were learning what the true gospel was. Mm-hmm. We just simply asked the question, why are we sharing about activations and not talking about Jesus? And we were told that we don't have time. We're, we're giving them practical solutions. We don't have time so, to talk about Jesus? Yeah. So it, you, you don't hear that. You hear the Holy Spirit in all of it's It's the Spirit, and he comes, and you invite. If you, if you don't invite, he can't come. Yeah, right, right. And so all these things were just... I didn't understand open theism in the beginning, uh, other than when Evan was explaining it to me and I'm reading, it's open. That's all <laughs> yeah. I needed to know was it's open. I've been taught that. That's what I believe. Wow. Okay. Now, I, 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 I have to interject at this point because uh, when I asked you about the NAR, you brought up Jimmy Evans and Robert Morris. And um, and now I I don't flinch at that, but there's a lot of people that are going to be watching this interview and going, wait a second, did, did, did you just accuse uh, Robert Morris and Jimmy Evans of being in the New Apostolic Reformation? 
I think there's no uh, accusatory remarks to go on that. That is something that they hold to. That's just um, a fact. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's a fact. And the, we can certainly talk about the distinctives of that, but any church that has some type of apostolic covering, regardless yeah. of how, what kind of moniker they actually put on that terminology, but that anything that apostle so-and-so is going to be at some instant recognition of something to do with the new apostolic reformation. Yeah. And I, and I would encourage people just do a little bit of uh, do a little Google searching, you know, for Robert Morris and apostolic leadership. And you should find the relevant pages pretty quickly, uh, you know, that demonstrate that the, the leadership structure there at uh, Gateway Church is based upon an apostolic concept and that uh, there are legitimate. Well, they're not a legitimate. They're people who legitimately claim to be apostles there. But that's a whole other that's a whole other topic. OK, so you you recognize that what you were experiencing in 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 the NAR was openness. Now, how then is this different than uh, like you know client, kind of classic Arminianism? Um, you know that where they basically say that a human being still has to make a free will decision for Christ, but uh, that God Himself will give provenient grace in order to kind of cancel out the effects of original sin, so that somebody can make that decision. How is is the openness that you ran into different than just standard kind of Arminian, uh, you know, free will, uh, you know, uh, decision theology? That, that's a good question, Chris. In fact. Uh, a lot of what you just described to more of the, the classic theology that is really geared towards soteriology or really the salvation of individuals. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's unique about the New Apostolic Reformation, you almost have to take that notion of free will as it's related to uh, salvation, separate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that we ended up having to do, and uh, Dr. Ware was, was certainly helpful us in coming up with this idea that we had to come up with new theological terms to actually describe what it is that we were talking about. Because many of the theological terms, such as Arminianism, certainly there's theological spectrums, uh, very orthodox believing Christian on all, all sides of the aisle. And that spectrum is actually not even really what we're talking about here. Right. And that, that was one of the things that was really difficult for us when we were coming out of it, because we, we, we saw that there was so many aspects of open theism that when you lay it down on the framework of the New Apostolic Reformation, it it absolutely made sense. But yet, the the uh, the terminology of most seminarians, most uh, historical theological words didn't match. Yeah, and I yeah. think uh, breakthroughs and uh, recognize, <laughs> but that that's really it. It's partnering. I, with I God. hate that word. I hate that word. Yeah. It's, it's the presence, it's power evangelism. So the power that the Holy Spirit gives us and this mm-hmm. partnering with God is a, a large tenant of the new apostolic reformation. And that's just okay. it. And I think, if, so when we, uh, if we want to talk a little bit about kind of the overall framework of like how this fits into the new apostolic reformation, why it's yes. so different plastic Christianity, when we were coming out of it, uh, out of that movement, we kept asking, why is this not Christian? They're using Christian terms. They're, they're talking about prayer. They're talking about Christ. They they sometimes talk about the gospel. But yet, when when we were part of that, we were like, there's something that's just still not connecting. Something is different. It's almost like the terms were 
we defined, mm-hmm. yeah. that's exactly really what we, we found. Yeah. And so part of our research, and this is before we uh, went into doctoral studies, just on our own, just looking at like many do coming out of a movement, like where, who mentored who? Is this yeah. pastor good? Is that pastor good? Is this church good? And we just started trying to somewhat group these theologies mm-hmm. together. And then they, and a pattern started to form. And again, we were ignorant of a lot of the uh, yeah. uh, Christian history, certainly within the 20th century, certainly within the own movement itself. But all we knew is just these uh, uh, often what, what they call the generals of the faith in the new right. apostolic Reformi- uh, reformation movement. Those are the people that we knew. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when we, when we back up and actually look at the system of the New Apostolic Reformation, I think this was one of the things that was really helpful for us. And I think it, uh, when, it, when our research, we somewhat, when we were able to identify this, this theological framework, the entire New Apostolic Reformation yeah. movement made sense to us in a way that we can actually help those coming out of it. And like, let's not focus on the church. Let's not focus on the individual people. Let's help you understand this movement that you're a part of theologically so that we can help where you're into. So it goes like right. this. So see Peter Wagner, uh, many know this, this gentleman is, I wouldn't call him the father of the new abstract reformation movement. We can, we can call him someone who put a term uh, to the movement and he called it the sequence. And when he calls it the sequence, he's looking at the historical development of the NAR over the course of the 20th century. So many, many hear a terminology called the first wave, second wave, and third wave. Yep. Well, that, that is the, uh, the historical development from his perspective of the new apostolic age, which he said started in around, there's some discrepancy in his point of view, either 1998 or 2001. I argue it's 2001, that's the year that he introduced open theism in a public way. But when we look at the first wave, we're looking at early Pentecostalism, uh, the Azusa Street Revival. Many, mm-hmm. uh, many uh, have already talked about the, the roots of the Pentecostal right. movement. So C. Peter Wagner called that that is when God started this Holy Spirit movement on the earth. Fast forwarding to the, the second wave the in the 50s or 60s, if you will, the charismatic renewal, revival, if you will, um, kind of the ecumenical movement. Fast forward to the 80s with the uh, bringing back the, the prophets in his perspective. Yep. So the, I'm sorry, the second wave was kind of bringing back the intercessors. The third mm-hmm. wave is bringing the prophets. And then mm-hmm. at that point in the 90s, that, that was the actual NAR. But what's interesting about that, he was actually laying out this entire theological system even though he was doing it in a in a the span of kind of a progressive development at NER, but that is the entire theological system. And it goes like this. Because God chose to limit his sovereignty, and specifically with C. Peter Wagner, he takes the view of open theism in the sense that God has chosen to limit himself. There's mm-hmm. some who say that God cannot know the future. C. Peter Wagner really didn't make too much of a distinction of that. He was more along the camp of God just chooses not to know. So either way, God's understanding and foreknowledge of the future is just not there. So because God does not know the future, um, when Adam and Eve fell in, into sin, then that that whole aspect was unknown to God. So <laughs> it, he didn't see the fall. 
And so at that point, Christ became a contingency plan. And the dominion that mm-hmm. was that was bestowed to Adam and Eve to take dominion of creation was then given to Satan. Mm-hmm. So then Satan was, uh, and you'll hear it a lot in the New Apostolic uh, movement, that, that he's the God of this age. And that is absolutely biblical language. But that is very different than what Orthodox Christianity would believe. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the God of this age, essentially, that this is Satan's dominion. And at that point, God cannot intervene in creation because it is now that that dominion and authority has been given to Satan. I can hear Ken Copeland saying that, too. Exactly. And this really is the foundation. It's not just the NAR, but it's the same theological back end of the prosperity movement as well. Okay, which is rooted in, uh, you know, kind of the mind science cults. So it it, it really is. So now now we start looking at the idea of spiritual warfare because you have a a dualistic uh, cosmos where God is in, in heaven. And, and here on earth, you have Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the dualism really surprised me. And recognize, so oftentimes I hear, well, Satan is implanting. Satan is giving me thoughts. Satan knows. And so it, it really is giving Satan the sovereignty that belongs with God alone. And yeah. if, if God has limited his knowledge, Satan hasn't. Satan has the yeah. as, the, as the God of this world has whatever all knowledge that we have given him. Which now, real quick, when we talk about dualism, one of the big dangers of it is you lose the sovereignty of God in the midst of, a, yes. of dualism, and you exalt yep. Satan to the same level, and it's basically a duel between equals. Um, and and that that to me just is bizarre. So so this is clearly part of what's going on in the NAR is that their open theism has led to a duality that makes Satan a heck of a lot stronger than he really is. Yes. Yeah. And and with that dominion and sovereignty that Satan has, this is why you need those intercessors, and this is why mm-hmm. you have. St- levels spiritual warfare and and why you have so many of these other power ministries because the the spirit of the kingdom of light is needed to push through whatever is out in this cosmos that satan has and only when intercessors pray and bring about that can prophets then hear from god so when we hear breakthrough and we hear that people are getting healed or they're getting this or that because they had a breakthrough. This is what is really meant. Mm. So essentially, if we get a visual picture of it, duality, right? Satan and, and God in a, in a world that's almost filled with fog in that when the intercessors pray, they're, they're praying away this evil, uh, Satan's dominion into a, quote, breakthrough, like you said. To where now the potentiality that God can do something is now possible because we prayed away this kind of evil dominion of Satan. So when we hear it, things such as the atmosphere or God, have your presence come into this place or Mm -hmm. uh, we want to feel you, we uh, fill this room. Or even inviting him because he cannot until we do. Wow. 
So, so that's step one. Okay, we got a comment on this. So uh, okay. Dr. Ware, they come to you and, and they're kind of pitching this idea that they've been exposed to open theism, but it's very clear from what I'm hearing and also having read their dissertations that this is this is open theism that is now applied. This is applied yeah. open theism, not just some kind of speculative open theism. Oh, we just right. lost the wares. <laughs> hey, it's the peaches. Nice you guys hey, to come back. back. <laughs> we're gonna have right. to start all over again now, you know. No, no, we're not. Just don't listen to where. This is what people call Satan's war team. Yes. Ah, I see. God. So we okay. need to really work. And I, I don't mean this to make fun of, of the, yeah. the theology, but this is what we, I remember praying because I would feel burdened by whatever spirit was around that Satan yeah. was attacking me. Yeah. And the anxiety of that was, it was, it was a lot. All right, so let me let me make the point that I was making that yeah. I, and where we left off, and I'm going to pitch something to Doctor Ware because, uh, you know, so the point that I see in all of this is that um, where uh, Pinnock and Boyd are kind of like hypothetical open theists, they're talking about it in the abstract. What the NAR has done is taken open theism and they've created an applied version of this theology. This is applied open theism, and so when you when you heard about this for the first time from the Peaches and and, the, and you know they've got a, they've got a linguistic issue because you've we've they've got terminology that isn't classic to open theism because this is an applied theology. Uh, what was your initial uh, thoughts on 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 their hypothesis? Well, I was. I mean, I was surprised that it had that application because I just didn't know about that. But it made perfect sense because here was a movement that that really did rely upon a diminished God, yeah. right, and, and an exalted Satan. So you have these this kind of uh, reducing and and uh, and elevating going on in in ways that are exactly wrong. You know, I yeah. mean, you think of the creator creature distinction, and God is God. Goodness mm -hmm. gracious. I mean, you know, he is the omnipotent. He holds Satan's life in his hands moment by moment. Could snuff him out like that. There is no mm -hmm. competition here between Satan and God. But, but nonetheless, they have diminished God, and open theism kind of allows for that because God has decided that he's going to limit himself, right, in, in not knowing these things that are going to take place in the future and learning and trying to respond in ways that... that uh, uh, that are needed what, when he finds out what we do and that sort of a thing. Well, you diminish God in those kinds of a ways, and and you elevate Satan, and you then you end up with this kind of dualism that they've been yeah. talking about, and yeah. uh, and you even see this in the writings of Greg Boyd, who went yeah. from his kind of uh, open theism defenses, then on to you know God at war and these ideas of of this cosmic warfare that's going on mm. between God and Satan. So it's it's there as well. Yeah. So if, if, if I can like come up with like a mental picture of what what I'm hearing uh, the peaches describe is it's almost as if you have two equally matched football teams on on the iron grid and and the prayers and the intercessors are helping to give God the home field advantage so that uh, yeah. a breakthrough would end up being like a touchdown or a field goal or something like that to help God score. Is that is that a fair way of, of, of looking at what it is that you're describing? 
Yeah. Well, at least from the openest view, I think they would want to say all of this is because of God's self-condescension, right? Yeah. He, he, he could have been the God of Reformed theology, you know, that he, who determined everything that comes to pass, but he didn't want that kind of a world. So they would, mm-hmm. they would want this caveat to say this was by God's free choice. But nonetheless, once he's made that free choice, you've got this limited God that yeah. depends upon our prayers and our actions and those kinds of things in order to, to get done what needs to be done to fulfill his purposes. Is it any that, wonder I, that canonicism seems to be the, the going Christology in this movement? Uh, the canonic view that Christ lays aside his deity uh, and then does everything he does as, as a fully submitted uh, and obedient man under the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, this, yeah. And that's one of the things that I would say surprised me, but didn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, so in my dissertation, what, what I was actually looking at, if if C. Peter Wagner was an open theist, professed open theist at the end of his life, well, what did that mean for the entire church growth movement? What did that mean for the mission yeah. movement of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and, and, and onward back? Well, in 1956, C., uh, Wagner himself wrote in some defense of the kenosis. Mm-hmm. And that God uh, designed the uh, the the, um, the condescension of Christ to integration, but did so in a way that uh, suspended all use of any deity. And in that, it's a. It's it's they try to on the one hand affirm the hypostatic union, but at the same time denying its 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 implications. And and uh, and then you got clear passages like in the Gospel of John that said this is the first sign that Jesus performed to demonstrate his glory. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and then how do you just, you know? And so they they've got some big problems because this is an absolutely diminished deity, but they're they're hijacking. Christian lingo and semantics, and then pouring different meaning into it, which uh, the late Walter Martin, who had a profound impact on my early uh, formative years as a Christian apologist, uh, you know, he he would say is like you know kind of like hallmark number one of how the cults work. You know, uh, you know, Mormonism believes in Jesus. Mormonism believes in God the Father. The problem is, is that those words don't mean anything even remotely biblical. So. we had to yeah, completely yeah. deconstruct from all terminology. Um, yeah. Rebuild all it. right. So y- you gave us phase one. What's phase two in all of this? So, again, fa- phase one, you have the, the fog, and God cannot implement his will on earth. Phase two, now, with the, with the intercessors, pray to weigh that hole on earth, right? have a breakthrough <laughs> of heaven, open the doors of heaven. So now, now it comes down to the prophets. Now, the prophets specifically in the NAR are, are gifted individuals who have the ability to hear what it is that God is saying to the people. And that, I, that I, I'm assuming you're, you're saying that from their point of view, because I don't think they're gifted yeah. in anything except for nonsense. But, yeah. <laughs> of course. But, yeah. So, so now you have the, the, the role of the intercessor. And now you have mm-hmm. the role of the prophet who now yeah. God said, hey, I have this desire of my volitional will that I, I need to have happen on the earth. I can't do it until the intercessors prayed away that darkness. And now the essentially like a, an outfielder in baseball with the uh, catching the fly ball that's coming their way, they, they now have to catch that, but they don't know what to do with it. So the interpretation then is now for the apostles. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> and so the, the apostle, now, now we get into this. So for prophets, I think what we see a lot in the NAR is prophets who have a, and I'm getting like a, the name Linda, and it's like a white, a white house. And so these, these thoughts, ideas, words strung together make no sense. Uh-huh. Because but, they're, they're, not, they're not the interpreters of right. that. But right. Yeah, but that's, and that's also the best that a diminished God can give, you know, uh, yes. you know, that's a, that's a bad, also, I, I think about the fact that I have Vincent, you know, this character I created years ago, uh, you know, and, uh, Vincent, I, I used him because I, every time I would hear these NAR folks talk and they would talk about the Holy Spirit as if he was completely and utterly powerless. Uh, and so I created an actual character, a voice character, and I call him Vincent and, and he, and he, and he talks like this. Hi, this is the Holy Spirit, and uh, I'm I'm reaching out to you because I I really don't know how to use email and stuff, and and so could you like fire up your video and make a make a YouTube thingy to get a word out because I'm I'm really struggling here. This is really difficult for me, you know. And and I I had no idea <laughs> that I was dealing with a di- I got the diminished deity bit, but I didn't see it as as part of an actual system in their theology where, of course, the Holy Spirit has to be this utterly powerless and completely incapable and incompetent. What's the phrase Jack Hayford uses? Uh, God won't because we... God God didn't. God can't because we won't. Yes, God can't because we won't. And I think that's the cornerstone of all of it, is God's hands are tied. He tied his hands behind his back, and he's now in an arm wrestling match with Satan. And with no R. Right. And he cannot because, you know, we won't. Yeah. If we don't, God won't. So much for the God who can choose from these stones to raise up children from a- of Abraham, right. you know? I yeah. know. And, you know, oh, uh, and that, that, that's, I think, the moment that opened theism, a light bulb went off that, wait a minute. Why am I looking for these apostles who they're the ones who can listen to God? And I always have this desire, like, why, why is everyone else getting uh, these words of knowledge from, from the Lord? And why am I sitting over, over here like a radio that's turned off? Like, I just, it, it never came my way. So then it, the, this idea, now we can probably fast forward into the idea of the apostles and the deception. Now, now this is where I think the cult comes in. We're now the, we're looking to the apostles who actually implement God's will on the earth, right? So I guess to, to finish that, that string of thought there, so the whole sequence, uh, that is how God implements his will on earth, but he does it um, dependent upon those intercessors, prophets, and apostles, but that's not all. So that that's how he gets his will, his desires to the earth. But we have to remember, going back to Adam and Eve, what was given to Satan was dominion. Mm-hmm. Well, the idea that God is needing to create disciples, and this is where uh, our, our research on C. Peter Wagner, the whole church group movement, the, the, mm-hmm. this modern idea, let, let's get churches as big as we can, let's bring in people, let's, let's go make disciples, which sounds absolutely biblical. And in, in some sense it is, but the question is, what? why are we making disciples? And this has everything to do with open theism in the NAR. Mm-hmm. So because God can't get his will in the he needs more and more intercessors to pray away the, the darkness 
and to have more and more apostles actually creating, taking back that physical dominion until now we get into the seven mountain mandate. Yeah. So now we, now God cannot come back. Christ can't come back and reign until Christians have taken back that dominion on, on, on creation. So Christ is up there, unfortunately, twiddling his thumbs until we get more and more disciples to, to have more of an impact on God's will on the earth. And, and I think something that was really interesting was looking at what is a disciple? So Dr. Wary mentioned earlier that a disciple is one who was chosen in Christ. So we, we sit at the feet of the master and we learn. A disciple is one who learns. Mm-hmm. And if, if we are a disciple, Wagner said a disciple is a good church member who grows the church. It's one who chooses to work for God mm-hmm. to bring the kingdom back. So it's dominionism. It's a mm-hmm. disciple of dominionism, not a disciple chosen in Christ who is building God's kingdom by teaching and following all that the Lord commanded. Yeah, And, and this is a good test to that. If, if churches use the spiritual giftings test yes. and to determine where uh, people's giftings are in the church, so then they can be prophets, apostles, intercessors. That, that is a litmus test. Uh, regardless if, if church leadership has apostle in the name, it's the, the, the whole theological system behind that idea that right. the spiritual gifts, yeah. that's, it's all dependent on yeah. that. Yeah. And one of you had asked the question earlier in the interview, um, you know, considering the, the great impact that C. Peter Wagner, because he was at Fuller, you know, uh, and, and he was part of their, their, their church growth school. You know, he, he, he was the uh, doctoral advisor for uh, Rick Warren's dissertation. Um, is you know, what impact then does this open theism have on other movements like the purpose-driven church movement or you know, things like this? And I would note that when you, once you see what this is, this diminished deity who needs us to be able to do things, uh, that all of a sudden it you you can see elements of it like in in how the leadership is set up in purpose driven churches. Uh, so uh, Rick Warren in his uh, uh, purpose driven church book he he basically makes a strong appeal for the abandoning of the historic understanding of the role of a pastor and the replacing of the pastor with what would become known as a vision casting leader. Um, and this actually has more to do with Rousseau's uh, uh, views on how. Uh, on how government is supposed to work, then on the, how the Bible works. But at the end of the day, uh, that these vision casting leaders, these these pastors in the mega churches, they they're functioning as apostles, uh, and uh, and then the job of the leadership team is to then make the vision that the that this uh, this vision casting leader has received from God to make it reality. Everything is geared towards action. And discipleship in the truest sense of, of actually studying the scriptures and, and learning and doing all that Christ has commanded, that falls by the wayside to other activities related to growing the church. Mm-hmm. Sure. Huh. Yeah, Chris, you're exactly right. And that's one of the interesting aspects of Rick Warren. And I didn't spend a lot of time uh, looking into that outside my, my current scope, but Wagner had extensive um, praise for, for Warren. In fact, he, and he charged Warren to actually 
implement what his theological system into North America. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, every generation of, of Wagner's um, leadership, kind of depending on where, where someone was mentored in, with Wagner, be it the 70s, 80s, 90s, or, or post-NAR, uh, they're going to take different aspects of C. Peter Wagner. So now when we do look back at the church growth movement of the 80s and, and Rick Warren, uh, Wagner is unapologetic saying, even back then, what I was doing mm-hmm. was based on an open theistic paradigm. At the time, he just didn't have, that, that system didn't exist, so he didn't have any kind of theological framework, but yet he was a functional open theist all along. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then you really do have to take a look at missionaries and the, the, this, the ethos of this church growth all through the 80s and 90s, and even we see today, yeah. Is it open theism? And one could argue that there is some af- absolute aspects that are open theistic. And that's one of the things we've seen a lot of pastors uh, and Christians alike are adopting functional open theism without yeah. realizing the system that they're getting into. Yeah, and the- it's it. It's a functional open theism, but it may not be. It may not be a tacit. Uh, they may have made a free will decision to be open theists. How's that for irony? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Wagner actually laid out. I think it was fourteen or seventeen things within the church that need to change. Worship needs to change. Yeah. Uh, we're not theologians. We're going to have apostles. We're not going to have uh, pastors. We're going to have vision casters. And, and it was, we're going to diminish God and we're going to build up the Holy Spirit. We're going to, so all of yeah. these things were hallmarks of a, a path. And specifically with Warren, Wagner charged him with doing the seeker-sensitive movement. Yep. And in that seeker-sensitive, we don't see people are dead in sin. We, we see this libertarian freedom, but it, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, and it's it's actually going out into society and asking if you, even though you're not a church member, even though you you claim you're not a Christian, what would entice you to come to church? And then uh-huh. that's what we're going to do. And so it was Saddleback Sam was created in order yep. to get people in. So yes. when we oftentimes we hear that modern churches are pragmatic, well, again, that has everything to do with C. Peter Wagner, but right. we have to ask. Kind of pragmatism that, that we're doing and why we're doing it. So this is one a great example that we had to come up with a new theological term, what we're calling commissional pragmatic consequentialism. So if, if we think about what what, what that, that just rolls means. off the tongue, by the way. Can, 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 when we remember, yeah, when yeah. It, when, when I can remember, but it's the idea that the, the end justifies the mean. Yeah. So, but that's not not a philosophical sense in that. And justifies the means and whatever they're, they're saying that it's a righteous end. The righteous end is that we want to implement God's will on earth. It, we are to make disciples. So they're always tying back to the Great Commission, which sounds absolutely biblical. But they're, they're saying the doesn't matter what we do. We just we, the end goal is for us to make disciples. And so now, when in, we look in at order Martin, to tip the balance in God's favor. Exactly. Not, 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 not because we're supposed to make disciples the way Jesus said, but because then we'll give God a strategic home field advantage so that he can, so that he can, Jesus can finally come back. Um, and you'll often see it's not necessarily salvation. It, it is about 
making disciples, but what is left out of the Great Commission is teaching. Yeah. So you, you see baptizing, but you don't see teaching. And it, it's it's intentionally left out because we're mm-hmm. we're teaching. Wagner would say that when we're teaching the church, what we're doing is we're teaching them how to make more disciples. Yeah, yeah, I, I do find it within the ethos of uh, those types of churches that they are they they legitimately think that biblical teaching in, in an in-depth manner, you know, verse by verse expositional type uh, preaching, is an impl- is is an impediment to yes. uh, making disciples. They legitimately think it is something that creates a barrier. So that uh, dis- that people are, uh, are that it just slows the whole process down and keeps us from efficiently being able to make more disciples. Which wow, it, it subverts any notion that we are to read our own Bible, that we are yeah. to test anything that comes from a pastor or a teacher, and and truly see if that is of God. And, and that subversion is exactly what we noted. And even our family, the, the most common phrase is, I just didn't read my Bible for yeah. myself. Once I did, yeah. my yeah. eyes were opened. But I think to your point, Chris, that, that is the hallmark mm-hmm. of cults, right? So right. We, we're dependent now on the apostles and, and prophets and that whole sequence to, to tell us what it is that God, God uh, desires for us. But... One of the things that we, we realize, and Dr. Way has everything to do with uh, helping us reconstruct after our, our deconstruction in, in a righteous way, that we, we had no language skills in, in the sense yeah. that we, we, want, we had no idea of, these, of the theological history uh, of, of, in church history, that the terms, we had no theological concept which mm-hmm. we can start hanging our hat on, like, oh, sovereignty, well, what does that mean? Like, we, we, had, right. we, we were without language. So when yeah. we were without, without theological language, we had no ability to really read for ourselves. We weren't taught, like, what, what are the guardrails? Like, there's a reason um, that when you look through the, the passage of time that Christianity shouldn't have changed. And so it, there's a reason we have 2,000 years and more of, of saints helping us and really understand the word and interpret the word. And we took all that for granted. And I think in uh, the NAR teachers are very explicit about trying to call that old wineskin and with the new yeah. wineskin as new revelation for today. And um, we, we were theologically very naive. So one of the things I see as a common feature, um, in fact, as I've been preparing new episodes of Fighting for the Faith and doing my pre-production work, I, I keep running into this, is the constant... Um, you, you know, kind of reiterating this idea that God's about to launch a billion souls harvest. There's going to be a billion new Christians coming in. And, and uh, I even heard uh, the guy who put the Passion Translation together, he claims that uh, 20% of the uh, current pagan population of California is going to be converted to Jesus during the, the billion souls harvest. Um, is is that really that that's all when you consider it where that would fit into the framework of this assumed open theism uh, that that's basically a major breakthrough so that God can 
you know really kind of definitively tip things in his behavior in his in his uh, in his favor. So uh, there's an eschatological almost post millennialism that is a, is a necessary component of of this applied open theism. Can you talk about that a little bit? I and and you know I I can. You know, Dr. Ware, is that is that normal that uh, that, uh, you know, kind of a victorious postmillennialism would be uh, wrapped up in uh, in an open theistic uh, system? No, it, it really is not, because, again, with, you know, in an open theistic framework, God doesn't know. Mm-hmm. He, he's you know, he has he has desires and hopes and but he has to wait and see what we do. So I guess that the NIR um, application of this adds the dimension of the things that we do that make it possible for God to do more. And uh, so isn't God lucky we're here, you know, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we're doing the things that we need to be done. Um, you know, poor God, if, if it weren't for us. So um, just, I, th- I think that's the, you know, as, as you mentioned before, the applied theology, the, the application of open theism here is this notion of the things that we do that make it possible for God to do more. And, uh, yeah. and I think that's when you see it happening. But it's really yeah. not part of the, the openness view that I studied, that I, you know, that I had read from, you know, Pinnock and, and his uh, uh, companions. Yeah, and I, I can't recall uh, Greg Boyd being a, a post-millennial, uh, but I have I can't say I've, I've yeah. extensively read his work. So it you know, but uh, I I got I got a version of this when I was in the latter reign. So uh, I was I was kind of caught up in third wave uh, back at the end of the '80s uh, when prophets were restored to the church. Prophets, that, yeah, they weren't really prophets, uh, but uh, you know, over and again, uh, the the eschatology that I was pitched and taught was this idea that the bride has to make herself clean. The bride has to make herself ready. The bride has to conquer so that the bridegroom can finally come. And they would say that the reason why it's taken this long for Jesus to come back is because the bride hasn't gotten her act together. Uh, and and so you know and th- that same concept is kind of clunking around in the seven mountain mm-hmm. mandate, um, and mm-hmm. so I just I think it's fascinating that the God who is so diminished that he doesn't know this, the future is reduced to strategies uh, to uh, to ultimately have to be implemented by human beings, which that would then ultimately make it possible for him to have the final victory. But wouldn't it be our victory instead of his then? Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Who gets the glory in this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right, Chris. And that's when you look at, like, in parallel with this, like, a lot of folks ask, well, how did this fit in with, the, the, the healings that like the, the folks of like Todd White and that, that type of idea and like how did that fit into Joel's army and this had everything to do with it. To your point, the, uh, the NAR specifically has a very over-realized understanding of what, what the end times are um, yeah. and it's all it's going back to that dominion. So in, the, in Genesis, when God gave dominion to Adam and Eve, that is God's ultimate end goal is to go back to, to Eden. And like bring back the dominion on earth because that was his original design so he's trying to get back to his original creation mm-hmm. and wagner had the victorious eschatology and mm-hmm. it it very much is that i mean his 2008 book dominion just lays out dominionism in one of the clearest ways i think i've ever read 
And yeah. it, it makes total sense. I remember reading Dutch sheets and I remember uh, just thinking about, well, if Adam doesn't have it, I need to take it. How do I take it? How am I victorious? I have to pray. What happens if I don't? And so all of these questions come with it and you start to question God and you, mm -hmm. you really start to question, is God good? And if Satan is bad and God is good, but God can't implement unless I do something, how, how good is he? Yeah. And so many questions just really start swirling around and it just unravels anything that has any semblance of orthodoxy. Yeah. But the system makes sense. When you right. look at it, just these Christian words, it makes sense. It's more Which, akin to Mormonism or any other mm -hmm. religion than it is has any semblance of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. You are not wrong there. You are you are you are more right than you can imagine. Uh, the only thing missing is polygamy, but uh, give it a few weeks. I'm sure that'll show up. Uh, but um, but all of that being said, what what your hypothesis does is give an ability to come up with an explanation as to why the th why are they doing the things that they are doing i mean as an observer of chuck pierce's so-called church and you know and when we pray prophecy bingo and do things like this i you know i i just scratched my head going what has what what are these people thinking you know why do i why do i have these prophecy bingo words breakthrough suddenly uh you know kairos season that just constantly keeps showing up in these these word salad so-called prophecies it's 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 all wrapped up in an over in kind of a framework theological system that they almost because here's the thing i would i can never really accuse the NAR of engaging and teaching real, true, systematic theology. It, 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 they, are, they are taught this almost by inference and practice, um, you know, and where it's hard to actually kind of get them to speak out in the open clearly theologically. And then, of course, Wagner tried and now he's dead. And, and a lot of people are trying to still distance themselves from him while holding on to a lot of the weird stuff that he came up with. Huh. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, okay. and and I, I think the the suddenlies do come along with breakthroughs, and they they do come along with that that absolute <laughs> sequence. It it yeah. truly is. It, that is the key that unlocks the door of the mystery of the NAR. And, yeah. and I think this is the, the the at the end of the day, it's a show what right? Show what that we. We've been able to somewhat systematize the NAR in a way, like what, what's the, so what? And for us, it's really, we've been able to use it to have people, like let's not focus on, is this church bad? Or let's not focus on, this person said that they're a prophet or going to looking at our, our apostles wrong, yes. Mm -hmm. But let, let's focus first at the very core. If you, if you have the understanding of God wrong, it doesn't matter what all the, the, the logical conclusions at, at the end, like even if you correctly understand that apostles were uh, more historical in the early church, if you don't have the version of God right, then it, your entire theological system itself has nothing to build upon. Yeah. So th no, this I, is a way I think, for us to help others, including ourselves, it's kind mm -hmm. of mapping our own journey, like we got to get God right. 
Yeah, no, and, and, and you're dealing with the doctrine of God, which has got to be your primary doctrine. Uh, you know, cause the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. And, uh, and so uh, if you get this wrong, you're not going to get anything right. Yeah. So, Dr. Ware, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a thorny question, okay? Uh, when somebody has a, th a theology that is assumed or intentional, open theism, and you have a diminished deity, are you believing in the biblical deity, the one who has revealed himself in Scripture, or are you believing in a false god? Yeah, that is such a good question, and it's so difficult to to answer for this reason, that there's a spectrum of, as it were, misunderstandings about God. Yes. So, mm -hmm. for example, I would I would never say of Arminians as a whole category of people that they don't know the true God. Mm -hmm. I would say they they have misunderstandings about about who God is that need to be corrected. And you know, you think of A. W. Tozer; he was an Arminian. And yeah. yet he's the one who wrote, you know, famously, the opening line of chapter one of Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I agree with that statement. But even Tozer, I, I would claim, uh, got some things wrong on that. But then, you know, you can multiply the misunderstandings, the misconceptions to a point where s somewhere you've crossed the line. Yeah. And you're now thinking of God fundamentally differently than the true and living God. I don't yeah. know when it, you cross that line, but it must be the case. It's kind of like, you know, when did Fred go bald? We know when he had hair. We know he doesn't have hair. Well, what day was it? You know, so it's, it's yeah. really hard to know exactly when that takes place. Yeah. And, and, and I would note that the NAR is a dynamic uh, movement and it's not it does not hold a unilateral uh, the, the doctrinal statement it's it's a it's a loose confederation a network of people that have kind of like-minded in their in their uh, in their theologies but that, that just because one one church is more overtly open theist doesn't mean that another group within the NAR is ha, is also buying into that. They might be on that same journey heading down that track, but they're not necessarily there. But what we're looking at here is a way of systematically being able to define kind of a core theology that explains the practices of what's happening within the NAR, and that core theology at some point... Um, can legitimately depart from the actual biblical tracks uh, mm -hmm. uh, and belief in the one true God into a God right. of their own making. And that, that is the actual yeah. danger of this movement. Right, right. Yeah. And Chris, I actually yeah. take that basically one step further, and it's our hypothesis <laughs> in some of our experience as well that the default view is open theism until one has actually been discipled into orthodoxy. Mm. Yeah. So that, that view of God is the natural view of man that rebels against God, saying that I have some level of authority or sovereignty over you. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that shows the importance of discipleship. That shows the importance of standing on the shoulders of giants who've gone before us and, and really be a part of that true discipleship in, in the beautiful language of, of theology. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that, that's a good point. I you know because you'll note that uh, we human beings have a pretty uh, inflated view of our abilities. 
Um, and, you know, and, and, at least when we're younger, uh, as I get older, I'm beginning to think that maybe something's wrong with me. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but you're right. And, and, and we get this, we get this as, a, as an impact of our fall into sin because we're, we're, you know, Christ describes us as children of the devil. That doesn't mean we're literally his children. But, you know, the, the idea is, is that uh, we suffer from the same narcissistic, uh, me-focused, uh, you know, we're so t- truly bent in on ourselves that we we, we deify ourselves and, and our thoughts. So I, I'd like to to wrap up this this interview uh, because you know we we went longer than an hour and I knew we would. But and again we've we've just scratched the surface. But uh, the, mm-hmm. it, I my question is: Are there any available resources that people can go to? To begin to do their homework, so that they can do a little further study on this. Um, so I, you know, I, I think of the peaches here, uh, Evan and Vivian. Uh, I've, I've read your dissertations, but I, I don't think your dissertations are easily accessible to people outside of academic communities. Uh, is, is there is there a place where you, you you've put together any resources where you're taking the, some of the uh, portions of your dissertation and then bringing them down to a level where people, you know, lay people can begin to wrap their head around this, so that they can. See see the things that you're putting forward, because I think your hypothesis is absolutely solid. I think you guys have argued it well, and I think it is a it is a hypothesis that has explanatory power behind the practices that we've been covering here, um, my program, for more than a decade. So uh, is there anything that you would recommend? Where, 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 where are the next steps for the people who are watching this? Great question. The best place to go is specifically about open theism, uh, Dr. Weir's book, uh, the, uh, actually, I'll, I'll let you speak about that, and then we'll, we'll talk about kind of some of our resources. Right. Okay. Well, I, I wrote two books, what, one that's more academic, God's Lesser Glory, and then another one that was written more to lay level, Their God is Too Small, is the title okay. of it. Both, both of these published by Crossway Books. And uh, other, others, of course, wrote against open theism as well. John Frame, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are there are some good resources available on the on open theism generally. Now, okay. on the NAR component, that's a whole different thing. And yep. I think Evan and Vivian are actually breaking ground here. And I so agree. I don't know much out there yet, but uh, they're going to put it out. Uh, I'm confident. <laughs> But uh, I, I'm hoping so, that we have a, a website breakthrough that suddenly appears with uh, some information from from the peaches. So, uh-huh. yeah, but, yeah. So to, to your point, Chris, one of the things we've had so many wonderful resources out there, Holly Privick's book, uh, Costa yeah. Can, there's some wonderful resources out there specifically on the NAR. But one of the things that we're trying to do is we're in the process of creating that repository site. Uh, it's going to be called the protestantcollective.com. We don't want okay. it in our names. It's going to be uh, the goal of that uh, is to find a resource that actually uh, combines a lot of these other resources, but in a very uh, methodical way to help people uh, coming out of it. For instance, we're in the process of writing a book now called Suddenly Strange, mm-hmm. in that how do you properly deconstruct out of Christianity? Because that's that terminology is is uh, a scary word, and in a lot of when we look around today, we see a lot of folks deconstructing out of Christianity. Well, yeah, they're deconstructing out of this movement. So we, with us having come out of it, and um, 
uh, I first talked to it of education and really looking at how, what is the step-by-step process that we can actually help each other think and kind of building yeah. upon that actual curriculum and then uh, the PhD section that we're looking at uh, putting that resource out there for people who don't have to go to seminary. You can actually uh, give them a resource like what is day one? Like my whole world just crashed, but what it, this Christianity that I knew that I grew up in, the, the whole yeah. world around me is suddenly strange. Yeah. So we're in the process, hopefully, to get that out uh, hopefully next next year. But the, the website, okay. uh, to your point, we, we hope to start putting out some resources. Uh, we're, we're kind of behind. We're, we're, we're trying to catch up on trying to get some stuff out there. But in the meantime, you know, uh, go, go I, and help all the books. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll call Darth Vader to get you guys back on schedule. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Perfect. But uh, so so just for the a note for the people watching, we'll put a link uh, and we'll put some links down below to Dr. Ware's books and also ProtestantCollective.com in the hope that sometime sometime in the near future that'll be a live link, even if it's not when we uh, when we first publish this video. But I, I agree with Dr. Ware, uh, Evian, uh, Vivian, and Evan. You guys are breaking ground here in in in, in giving people a theological overlay and making the connection between NAR's assumed open theism and their applied open theism to you know to what's going on here and my hope is that this that with this framework the uh, other people beside myself and you will be able to have those aha moments so that they can see wait a second I wasn't actually taught biblical Christianity this is something different and so you're right because there's a lot of people who are deconstructing their Christian faith when in fact they haven't really been taught orthodox biblical Christianity uh, you know, I think of all the people who've had their lives devastated by the implosion of the Hillsong movement, uh, but uh, Hillsong was actually steeped in NAR beliefs and practices, um, and you can see a lot of the open theistic elements now that I, you know, now, now that I know what to look for, I can easily like walk through my memory lane and go, oh, that's what was ticking there the whole time because they were clearly into the Seven Mountain Mandate and, and things like this, and uh, and so. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is fascinating stuff. So I want to thank you guys for your time and thank you for coming on and, and willing to uh, talk about a complicated subject uh, in a basic way so that uh, we can begin to help people in the wider body of Christ see these important distinctions uh, so that they can uh, you know, warn themselves, warn their friends and family members, and, uh, as, and as the body of Christ begin to uh, come up with a good biblical apologetic against this aberrant view of who God is. By the way, Dr. Ware, I love the names of your books. You know, your, your God is too small. <laughs> that's, yeah, you don't pull any punches with those titles, do you? That's, that's great. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, poor Vincent is offended. What do you mean? Are you saying that I'm, I'm so... You know? <laughs> Well, I, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna sign off here. I'm gonna ask you guys to stay on. We'll talk for a couple of minutes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off with the audience and uh, and then uh, and and then we'll get back to it. again. Thank you for coming on fighting for the faith. Now, if you found this interview to be helpful, I know it's a little bit mind-bending and it's, it requires you to do some follow-up work if you really want to do some research on this. Uh, if you found this helpful, all the information on how you can share the video is down below in the description. And I would like to give a shout out, a thank you to all the people who are part of our crew. You make it possible for us to be able to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And if you would like to support us financially by joining our crew, there'll be a link down below that'll take you to our website where you can 
can join our crew. And I, again, thank you, because without your support, we can't do what we're doing here. So until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.